Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from Balanced. This is Ben Greenswag, the founder of Balanced, and I am here with Chris Becker. We are talking about from the Cuban Missile Crisis to COVID-19, understanding all types of childhood trauma and the promise of psychedelic therapy. This is the very first podcast we have had um, with Balance that focuses on children. So it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ben, for having me. Well, it is an absolute pleasure. I love your background. I love the way your mind works. But rather than me telling the audience about you, because you have a phenomenal background, and I think you bring a tremendous perspective, why don't you give the audience uh, sort of the 30-second uh, background on who is Chris Becker? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I'll uh, try to wrap 68 years into 30 seconds. Um, I'm going to give you a few <laughs> extra seconds, by the way. <laughs> um, Senior, uh, yeah, senior uh, uh, discount or something. Um, so yeah, so um, yeah, I think one of the things I like to talk about uh, for people is uh, what happens in childhood, because whether you're uh, uh, five or ten or fifty or eighty, uh, childhood can be with us and it can affect how we live our lives. And so we'll we'll dive into that a little bit about me. So, um, so I had some problems in childhood, like a lot of people, uh, but uh, I was functional. And um, I had uh, decided uh, I would be good in academics. So I was lucky to be able to do that and find some uh, positive uh, feedback. And so I went to school, got a PhD in chemistry. I, have, I had a good career in, uh, in chemistry, uh, both um, or as a scientist and also doing some business, founding, founding a couple companies. And uh, so very functional, um, uh, with a lot of pain along the way, but, um, uh, but uh, functional and recently retired uh, from my uh, active duty. Uh, but uh, that's a, so I, I bring a science uh, background, although I'm not a psychologist, although I've been learning a lot about psychology as I've learned about myself. Um, so, um, but, but the scientific uh, background is good for observation. It helps it, uh, have a good, clear vision to some extent, although we have our, our hidden uh, parts of us. And then we'll talk about how to find uh, those hidden parts of us that limit us. Great, thank you, Chris. And for those that have followed me and certainly my journey, I had my own childhood traumas as well, which uh, were successfully released when I underwent MDMA therapy uh, back in March of this year. So I can relate and understand. Um, and uh, I'll tell you why it was so interesting to have this conversation with you today is um, I am a mental health advocate and I witnessed uh, very firsthand with my own three children, um, a lot of what I noticed to be the psychological um, deterioration among our, our youth uh, during COVID-19. And Lord knows the world does not need another conversation on the response and where we go from here. But I think the one thing that is relatively universally accepted is that children, particularly younger children, uh, are really at no major statistical risk. Um, they are not uh, proven to be transmitters. You see this through all the studies, through daycares and nurseries and schools. Um, 
and yet they are bearing uh, a very unnecessary large uh, share of, of pain body for those Eckhart Tolle readers uh, in all of this. And it made me think of another time in American history before my time, and I'm not going to date you, of course, Chris, but certainly I'll say you've studied it, um, which is uh, the psychological impact of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there are some interesting studies that were written about the psychological impact of children hiding under their desks and the imminent threat of destruction uh, day after day. So I guess I'll, I'll, I'll turn that back to you, which is, uh, do you see any parallels? Do you have any thoughts on what you think happened then and, and what might be happening now? What, how do you interpret what I just put out there for you? Well, I think there's a lot of similarities to, to COVID, although um, let me just uh, real quick uh, for uh, the younger members of the audience, uh, a sketch uh, what was happening when I was a kid. So yes. I was born in uh, November 1951. And that was during the Cuba, uh, excuse me, during the Korean War. So the country was at war in a very scary time. We'd already gone through World War II. And now we're uh, in the Korean War when I was born and the Chinese had invaded and there was a, you know, they were going back and forth. And so there was all that. At the same time, um, <clears throat> the, um, the Russians had gotten the A-bomb and then um, we had, de we detonated the H-bomb and then they, Russians detonated their own H-bomb. <laughs> and these, and these bombs were, uh, um, these, the hydrogen bombs were, we're talking, I forget, 10, maybe a hundred times bigger than the ones that were dropped uh, in Japan in, uh, in the World War II. So the whole consciousness was that these were, huge, uh, huge threats to civilization. And this was all happening when I was a, a kid, a toddler, baby, a toddler, young a child. Um, and I think uh, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was kind of, um, kind of a crowning, if you will, uh, uh, um, traumatic episode to that whole uh, Cold War. Um, in fact, maybe got a little bit better after that, but uh, not easy after that. But so the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, if people don't know, uh, the Russians had put uh, missiles with uh, uh, nuclear weapons on, on top of them in Cuba when we kind of figured it out. And, or they were coming or something. I think that maybe that they were preparing the base and then we found out that the, uh, through espionage that the missiles were on their way on a ship mm -hmm. and uh, they were gonna blockade uh, Cuba. Anyway, it was, uh, it was a knuckle, uh, you know, white knuckle kind of situation for the adults. And I can remember, so this would be, I would, I would be about 10 years old at the time. And I can remember uh, John Kennedy, the president, uh, go on TV and basically tell the country that like, hey, we, we, we might be in nuclear war here uh, very soon. This is what we're doing. We're blockading Cuba. We're hoping that the Russians will back down, but uh, he was uh, very straight with the country and telling them uh, what was going on. And I remember that very clearly. So you can tell that uh, if it's stuck in my memory, that it was, uh, it was a very big moment. Well, interestingly enough, I, I talk to my mother a lot, uh, who's just a few years uh, within your range. I won't say older or younger, within your range. Um, and um, she shares with me constantly how she needed new glasses. And she kept on saying to her mother during the Cuban Missile Crisis, what's the point of getting new glasses? I'll be dead anyway tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it kind of leads me to the first point, which is, you know, you talk about adult symptoms resulting from denial and amnesia. 
uh, about childhood trauma. You know, with my own trauma, um, for reasons I did not understand until I underwent uh, my therapy, um, I had years of middle schooling that I had virtually no recollection of. Couldn't remember classrooms, people, a little bit of fragments here and there. So, you know, my, my, my event happened around the time that I was 10 and middle school, of course, is 11, 12, 13. And, um, and I just never knew why I couldn't remember it. I just assumed, ah, I got a bad memory. That's the way life works. But something tells me you might have an interesting perspective on this as well. Right. Well, a lot of us um, don't remember very well what happened to us when we were kids. And of course, actually, some of these things happen uh, before the brain has a real good memory capability. That is uh, in, in infancy. People, I know I had an abandonment uh, event happen when I was an infant um, because I could piece together the family history. And there was um, and all the other bad things happened uh, during my childhood, some of which I can remember. Uh, but we have a tendency, I don't know if it's self-preservation or what it is, but we tend to, uh, you know, think, oh, my, and most people will tell you, oh, yeah, my childhood was pretty good, or it was okay, or it was average, or something like that. And they don't actually realize that maybe they were uh, neglected, or that they just weren't loved the way people need to be loved, really accepted just the way they are. And that happens very, very often. And of course, there are other things too, you know, from horrific things, but also, uh, you know, beatings and alcoholic uh, parent beatings and, uh, you know, actually being, telling the kids, you have to go get, your, get the belt, you know, mm -hmm. go get the spoon I'm going to hit you with. Um, and then there are also very subtle things that people kind of don't realize how important they can be, you know, what we call about behavioral correction, which is basically you don't really get the love or even kind of a, a positive uh, glance or anything unless you do something a certain way or you behave a certain way or you do something for mommy or you do something for daddy in a certain way that basically robs you of your own persona. And so people have a natural tendency to uh, have amnesia or denial and um, and they go through, they carry a lot of pain. I did, I guess you did and yeah. probably and studies shown show that uh, the majority of the people in the world uh, go carry this pain and they don't really quite know it. And that's, of course, uh, why it's important to uh, talk a little bit about symptoms. And maybe we can spend a minute or two about symptoms. Yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run a, kind of a, a quick uh, anecdote by you, which I think will set up the symptom conversation, because I think that's really important because I don't think you really understand your symptoms until you unfortunately get through uh, your, your treatment. And then you realize, oh, my God, those are all, all symptoms this whole time. And kind of the analogy that I use is, you know, I felt I was a boat on the water and I would never be able to, to break away or, or, or gain speed. Life would throw various things at me like it does all of us. And you'd navigate your challenges. And I always just felt, well, it's the wind, it's the tide, uh, it's, it's, it's these barnacles on my hull and I can never really get free. But what I realized in my, in my treatment was that in reality, I had this tether on my uh, propeller and uh, all the way from the screw, all the way right down. And it went deep, 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 where talk therapy might never have gotten to it. And it was underground in a big iron box and boom, that's, that's kind of where, where, where this was. And 
your whole life you're spending your time trying to fight against the wind and the waves and, and, and all these debris, and, and, and yet you actually have this hidden tether. And so that creates symptoms. In, in the boat analogy, you know, your motor would burn out or you would burn a lot of oil or your gas wouldn't do this. And that kind of sounds like uh, some potential symptoms that you would realize that as an adult. So I'll give you that springboard of my analogy to interpret and go further, Chris. Great, Ben, I think it's a wonderful analogy. And um, so symptoms, so I think one of, the th one of the things like, you know, why am I talking, why, why did I write a book, why am I talking to people, is to try to help them, right? That's the only mo motive I have. Um, and for a lot of us, um, uh, I, I kind of came to realize I needed treatment because I got a wake-up call. And it was, um, but I'm hoping that not everybody waits for that wake-up call, that they, they kind of uh, look in the mirror and, and, and listen to the following. Like, what are the symptoms that we can have? Well, there are all kinds of common symptoms and hopefully people, and we know people are in, are in denial pretty often, but let's, let's try to shine a little light on them. So in my case, semi-obvious, uh, drinking, uh, alcohol, also smoking pot. When it becomes an everyday thing, even though I was functional, never drank on the job, had a good job, had a good career. But in the evening, I would drink. I would, uh, you know, maybe have a bottle of wine uh, in an evening, which is quite a bit. And, um, and us, uh, uh, for a lot of years, smoked pot every day. And in, again, in the evening, I didn't go to work uh, stoned and so on. Never had a DUI, but I was functional. But that's you just- You were uh, numbing the pain at night. Numbing the pain. But there's all kinds of addictions besides alcohol and drugs. There's addiction to shopping and, uh, and sex and eating and uh, overeating, uh, anorexia, um, fast cars, money, power, work. A lot of people are addicted to work. Um, something to uh, avoid uh, just being with yourself. And then, of course, there's depression. A lot of people, depression is a huge problem in the country and in the world. Anxiety. Uh, compulsive behavior. And it turns out that most people have these kind of symptoms. Uh, some are more large than others, but I think if, if, if the listener, uh, you know, maybe goes in the bathroom, closes the door, takes a look in the mirror and says, you know, ask themselves if any of the things we just talked about um, might, you know, ring true, then you're suffering. And that's why uh, you know, that's why it's, it's good to uh, realize that. Let me, let me jump on with a question because clearly, you know, the, these symptoms that you shared, I don't want to say they're obvious, but they're certainly more evident than others. In your experience, through your book, through your own personal experience, your connections, have you come across less obvious uh, symptoms that in hindsight, you put them together and you say, oh my God, I can't believe that fact pattern was so obvious now in hindsight. But is there a, an example or, or something you could share that might be a less obvious system, uh, symptom, can't even say the word now, uh, that you'd want to share with the audience? Uh, yeah, well, another one is uh, interpersonal relationships, how we act with other people. And it could be a, a romantic partner. Uh, we know that the divorce rate is, um, I think it's more than 50%. Yeah, and um, probably probably a lot more once this pandemic ends. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then of course a lot of people stay in relationships, don't get divorced, even though they're unhappy. So if you add those together, we're talking about a large fraction. So that's an example of a symptom that may not be so obvious. You know how we 
how we relate to each other. And of course, it could be not just a romantic partner, it could be uh, to our parents, to our children, to our friends, to our coworkers, you know, the kind of the way we are with other people, whether uh, instead of just being accepting and loving, you know, we have this thing, problems come up, and we kind of don't know, how come that we're having these problems? And of course, we typically blame the other person. But if you, if you can kind of look and say, gee, I seem to have problems in my relationships, or I've been through more than one, you know, romantic relationship, and, you know, I have troubles with my kids, uh, they don't seem to like me, or my brother or sister doesn't want to talk to me, um, you know, all kinds of things. These are, that's another example that maybe not quite so obvious, uh, that is really very common in our society. One of the questions that I certainly try to answer, um, well, find the answer, um, and I haven't found one yet, but I'm curious if, if you have or you have any thoughts at least, is we don't exactly know yet why some traumas impact people one way and the same trauma can impact people the other. You could have a traumatic event and you know people can be just fine and they don't need to drink or smoke or whatever the case can be and they move on with their life and then you could have others um you know that have a very small in proportion incident and uh it could be a game changer for their for their for their careers and and for uh, their their adulthood do you have any sense on why uh, how what goes in is it sponginess of brain is it i mean i'm just curious what what why do different traumas why does the same trauma in, uh, impact people differently uh, that's a that's a great question. I think uh, psychologists study and debate that. Uh, so I don't think there's a simple simple answer. But it it you know you're talking a little bit about resiliency, and it could be uh, a little bit about uh, genetic or biological uh, makeup. It could be about your prior experiences in life. You know how how secure and safe you feel when you were raised as a child versus insecure and unsafe you felt as a child. Um, so um, there can be multiple factors, I think, is, is a short answer. And um, not easy always uh, to tell really what, what that is. And also there's uh, people who study trauma and healing trauma also know that there can be physical um, activities that you can do to release some of that traumatic energy. And some people know how to do it instinctually and some people don't. And um, so there can be multiple factors that... Uh, uh, cause somebody to uh, suffer greatly from what you might consider a fairly minor uh, incident and other people just, uh, you know, go through it no problem. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. And, and as I said, one uh, psychologist spent time worrying about. I had myself on mute. <laughs> I was trying to be respectful. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about psychedelics, right? After all, this is a balanced podcast and you know, we've kind of been dancing a little bit around psychedelics. I've been very open about my own interests and experience and, and sort of liberalization from them. Uh, liberation. I uh, really can't talk today on a Monday. Um, how did you first discover psychedelics? What's your relationship with psychedelics? Give the, give the audience a little bit of a, of a peek in terms of your mind uh, with, with this, what I would just call a class of medicines. Right. They are medicines when they're used in a, in a responsible way. Uh, well, first of all, I had some experiences when uh, in my 20s, back in the 1970s. Um, there were things like uh, Carlos Castaneda books that some people might know about, Timothy Leary, mm. uh, LSD, peyote, 
um, mushrooms. So I had a few of those experiences exploring like a lot of young people do now, but the, those experiences were uh, maybe we'd call it unsupported, uh, immature, but they gave me a little bit of a taste that there was a, that they were very powerful substances. So Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you because did you come from a family that would tolerate or uh, would discipline had they known about any psychedelic usage? Was there a conversation ever in the family growing up? Uh, no, but all this happened after I went away to college. Got it. So okay. I think the parents, the parents would not have approved, I don't think. <laughs> uh, Fair point. But I kept, uh, kept that information away from them. Um, but then I didn't have any of those experiences um, after that. And it wasn't until uh, my wife and brother said, uh, uh, really just a, a couple years ago, um, hey, you got, you know, you got to quit drinking. Uh, it's just a problem. Uh, it's not just the drinking. Uh, you're kind of, uh, my, you know, my wife's saying, you know, you're not, you check out, you know, I, I don't have a husband. You, you're kind of checked out by 9 p.m. Like, you know, this is not, it's not a good relationship now. So I got a wake up call. And of course, I'm hoping that not everybody waits for that wake up call, but a lot of us do something like your wife says, you know, you gotta do something or we're done, or you get in a car accident or somebody dies or some big event happens and there's a wake up call. But uh, in, any, in any event, um, I, so I knew about psychedelics from my 20s. And so now I'm in my 60s and I had come across Michael Pollan's book, How to Change mm -hmm. Your Mind, which yes. was a bestseller. Uh, somebody told me about it and I was interested because of my history. So I read it. And so when my wife and brother were saying, you got to do something and you got to have a plan, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to stop. You have to have a plan. So I started to think about that book and some of your listeners will know it. Of course, I'm not. Um, but uh, Michael Pollan talks about the history of uh, uh, psychiatric use of uh, these medicines. And so I knew that they had been used in the past to uh, treat addiction, for example, and depression, anxiety, and so on. And so that's, um, that's how I kind of got in my head. Well, that's, that'll be my plan. Uh, I'm going to try this. Who knows if it'll succeed, but uh, I'll try a psychedelic assisted therapy. And uh, so that's when I uh, went down that road. About how long ago was that, Chris? It was almost exactly two years ago. So to my audience, which so far has really skewed more towards the younger side, um, here you are uh, north of 60, um, and you still want to fix yourself, and you still want to get better, and you got turned on to the world of psychedelics. You had some recreational experience a long time ago. Uh, and you figured, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Uh, the book makes sense, and I'm, I'm going to try to heal myself. That's um, not as common of a story as you would hear, uh, and I'm sure there are many others of that generation uh, that would think, oh, these are bad, 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 bad drugs. Just say no. Look where we grew up. How did you, how did you uh, overcome uh, that sense of uh, I, I deserve to be healed, I guess, is the best way that I can, can, can do that. How, how did that conversation in your mind go? Well, uh, first of all, in my case, because I got that wake-up call, I felt like I had no choice. Okay. I, I had to do something. Although, I'm, like I said before, I hope some people realize when they look in the mirror that why wait? Why wait until you're 60? You know, 
why not, uh, you know, if you're 30 or 40 or 50 or whatever, or 80, doesn't matter. Take, don't take it to the grave. Don't take that pain to the grave. Mm. So um, I think maybe because I, when I experimented with that in my younger years, uh, that I was less afraid of it. And I think for some people, uh, fear would be an issue. And just going into therapy, it takes courage. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people... Uh, are afraid of therapy. And of course, uh, the, our culture tends to say, oh, if you need therapy, then you're broken, you're, you're a defective person, you're less than a human being. So that's a terrible stigma that we, our society unfortunately still has. So yeah. you have to overcome the fear, you have to overcome that stigma. And then you have to realize that, hey, you know, uh, I'm missing out on life. I don't wanna go to my grave carrying this pain. I want to be a better person to other people, but also to myself. I want to feel uh, healed. I want to feel peaceful and loving and happy and f feel joy in my heart. So I'm willing to take that risk. And I think that one message I would have that I learned from uh, uh, Michael Pollan's book um, was to do it uh, in a responsible way. Uh, not a recreational way, not uh, take some acid, go down to the beach and hope it all works out. <laughs> but, uh, but find a therapist who understands the medicine, who's trained, well-trained, not an overnight shaman, but somebody who's really been trained in psychology and also how to handle the medicine. And, uh, and open up to that person, be honest with that person. And for me, I started with talk therapy uh, for a few months of talk therapy because that's what the therapist said, you know, listen, we just gotta, let's just, uh, you know, pump the brakes here on the psychedelics. Let's just have some talk therapy. Let's talk about what happened to you. Let's do maybe some dream work. Let's start to pull up, you know, little threads of those memories. Let's try to pull them up a little bit more. And of course, one of the reasons psychedelics do work so effectively is even though we can do the dream work, we can try to pull up a few fragments of those memories the psychedelics actually open up the unconscious. Yes. And that's where a lot of the activity really is, is residing. And so that medicine, can, together with a loving container, that a safe loving container that the therapist can provide is actually the whole um, uh, plan or, or place uh, that the healing can take place. It's not just the medicine, it's not just popping a pill, an LSD or magic mushroom, but it's the context with the therapist, a loving therapist, where you work out and really understand what you have to work on. Those are your intentions. You have the safe container and then, of course, integration uh, following the experience. So it's that whole, whole package, a whole place you know, where the healing can take place. Someone said to me that uh, their psychedelic-assisted therapy, uh, like years and years of therapy condensed to a few hours. And I said, uh, I don't care how many years I would have continued with therapy. I never would have gotten that deep. Um, now, I'm sure there are therapists that can get that deep. There are obviously many that can't. Um, but when your mind puts up roadblocks and doesn't want you to remember things or understand things, it, it makes it very challenging. Um, so let me ask, um, if you don't mind, which psychedelic uh, did you choose? Why did you choose it? Uh, well, I, I was uh, fortunate to encounter a therapist who comes from a community. A community has sort of a plan, uh, at least for the average uh, client. 
uh, and they start off with uh, two uh, journeys with uh, MDMA, mm. and then follow it up with a psilocybin mushroom uh, journey. Uh, maybe more if you need it, but that's usually does a lot of the work right there. And so the MDMA is heart opening, as you know. Yes. Um, and um, uh, I know for me, for myself, it, uh, I like to say it blew the doors off my emotions. I mean, I just opened them up in ways that I didn't really know I could have those kind of feelings in there or express those kind of emotions. And um, so the heart opening was just really beautiful. Uh, and understanding my childhood from, uh, uh, you know, to be able to, to for, forgive uh, others, but also uh, love myself and feel love from the therapist. So when you go back to those uh, places and you feel the love from the therapist too, you have what we call a corrective experience. And that corrective experience works uh, to uh, counteract or heal uh, the traumatic uh, environment or the traumatic event that we have. And then the mushrooms are also good too. The mushrooms are, have their own place too. They tend to uh, uh, find hidden places in our psyche that are pretty hard to get to otherwise. Uh, so the mushrooms can also have a, a positive uh, role in the healing process. I think it's important now for our listeners to know that everyone has a very different experience. Um, when I went into, uh, before I had my MDMA therapy, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who said, well, when he took it, he felt all watery and things were wonderful. And it had almost set up an expectation that this was going to be a pleasant experience. And again, I say this for the second time, everyone experiences it uh, differently based upon, um, based upon their, their, their own background and how the medicine works. And, uh, you know, I went into mine with only one intention. And my intention wasn't to cure my depression, handle my anxiety, deal with my PTSD. My question was knowledge. I wanted to know why I felt the way I felt. Um, and I had uh, a remarkably unpleasant, tremendously cathartic, very successful experience, uh, including sweating through my shirt and vomiting up my guts afterwards and uh, the final purge, so to speak. So um, I have not heard it to be that extreme with psilocybin, which I have not tried, but certainly on my list. Um, but your experience, in, and I want to go back to a comment you mentioned, which was it, it, uh, psilocybin allowed you to, um, magic mushrooms, those that don't know, um, uh, to, to reach, I think you said, to reach parts of your mind that, that you might not know or, or unlock areas that you might not be aware of. Can you explain a little, little, a little bit of that to the audience? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, Ben, I would also add that um, uh, not only is an experience different for different people, but if you have more than one uh, journey, uh, each journey can be different for the same person. Right. So there's a lot of variability, absolutely, in this process. Um, now, my, magic mushrooms, um, it's, very, it's earth medicine. MDMA is a synthetic, but it's a wonderful synthetic. Uh, MDM, um, magic mushrooms is really earth medicine. And um, it tends to be for, for let's say, you know, in the... In, uh, average for the average person for the average journey it tends to be a little rougher than mdma and i think that's one of the reasons why some therapists start with mdma even though you had a very difficult journey and a lot of people do also uh, have those difficult journeys in some ways uh, mushrooms can be a little bit rougher um, i have a name for it in my book i call it the celestial washing machine 
<laughs> so uh, if you think about a washing machine and the agitator, you know, it cleans you, but it also, uh, you know, it uh, bounces you around quite a bit. But it does, it shakes out the dirt, so to speak, or, or it can open up the psyche. It can open up the psyche to memories and feelings that I think somehow are, are difficult, really, really buried deep in the unconscious. And um, so I think that's one of the benefits of that medicine. Well, I know we're going to be coming to a close soon, but I do want to get a little bit into your book. I want the audience to know, tell us a little bit about the book, what you think a key takeaway or a couple of key takeaways uh, can be. Clearly, it is um, uh, a very direct, a very raw account from your perspective. Um, but uh, tell the audience a little bit about the book, the name of the book, why you wrote it, what you help people to, uh, to get from it. Great. Thank you. Well, the title of the book is Healing with Psychedelics. Very simple uh, title. It basically, easy to remember. Easy to remember. Uh, and it's a collection of essays and poems, um, mostly about uh, just uh, for my firsthand experience of the healing journey uh, and what it was like to me. I know that there have been a bunch of books uh, and excellent books written by uh, psychotherapists, uh, you know, experts, you know, what you would call an expert in the field. But I didn't think there was a much of being written. And I know that this is a theme for you. Uh, from the client's perspective. And I wanted to give a firsthand account on uh, just really um, what it was like to be in the client uh, role, you know, on my back with eye shades on, uh, with the medicine, uh, with a full strength medicine dose uh, and, a, and a loving therapist by my side. And so there's essays that describe that in uh, some detail. There's also a little bit about meditation in the book. I'm a long-term meditator. I talk about what meditation did for me and what it didn't do for me, uh, and knowing that it can do some wonderful things and also it can have some limitations too. So a little bit of that is in the book as well. So that's a very quick uh, thumbnail sketch of it. Thank you, Chris. And for those listening, I think you can never get enough of first person uh, stories. Um, there is no guidebook and your experience will be very different from someone else's. Your goals will be different. You might not know your goals going into it, but firsthand accounts are priceless. I know one of the books I read in advance of my treatment was Trust, Surrender, Receive, um, which is all about first-person stories. Uh, names and identities change, but stories are factual about people's MDMA experiences. In fact, um, uh, the individual who I had my treatment with, uh, his story uh, is, is referenced uh, in the book a couple of times. You just won't know by who. Um, so uh, it, it's, I really encourage people to read and consume as much information and really bring them back to what I wanted, what you wanted, which is knowledge. Why do I feel like this? And I think, Chris, your message is beautiful. I think uh, I wrote down uh, some notes and I wrote down, don't take that pain to your grave. Um, you're not too old enough to want to feel better. And I think we all know that the world we're living in right now, there's a lot of trauma happening at all ages and it's gonna take a lot of effort to get through this uh, and we could use all the help we can get. Chris, I'm gonna thank you and then I'm gonna let you leave the audience with whatever wisdom uh, you wish to share, closing thoughts for those that are psychedelic curious because balance has been created to provide information for those who are psychedelic curious to make the journey they deserve. Uh, and on that note, I'll once again uh, extend my appreciation. There'll be a link to your book uh, when we post it uh, on our website. Chris, I give you the final words. Thank you, Ben. Thank you again for having me. Um, I think basically I'm here to uh, love people, 
And that's what I've learned through my uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. I learned to love myself and learn to love each other. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to spread a little help uh, for people who are in pain because I know that uh, the vast majority of people live this life in pain. I mean, you can all look, look back at uh, the ancient religions, Buddha, for example, talked about suffering. That's why Buddhism exists. That's why Christianity, Judaism exists is the suffering of people and how to heal that. And I think we're blessed to understand more and more that psychedelics can be medicines, and, but they need to be used responsibly. They should be used with a therapist who's well-trained, a loving therapist, and uh, to give you that safe container. So I know it's not, all these things aren't legal yet. Um, some of the, the, the legality is coming uh, pretty soon, so people can look forward to that. There are some underground uh, guides out there if people are interested. Uh, just be careful, uh, make sure you know who you're working with, make sure that you know that they're trained and uh, really uh, uh, you know, well-respected people. So um, I wish everybody a healing journey. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much, Chris.